Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On the pod today, joining us, we have the former Secretary of Labor, current DNC chair candidate, and one of the original friends of the pod, Tom Perez. It's exciting. Tom was our first interview back in the Keeping It 1600 days, Dan. I think it was the second interview, just to fact check you. Stop with your fake oh, news. Oh, it was, it was Tim Miller was the first interview, right? Yeah, Tom Perez was the first, and I think only in-studio guest we ever had. That's true. Maybe love it, back when he was a guest, before he turned a star turn as a guest on the pod into a executive founding role at Crooked Media and, and a long-term co-hosting gig. He is now a media mogul. So, seven days in to the Trump presidency, how you feeling, Dan? Not good. No. <laughs> Not good at all. Me neither. It's funny. We did the pod on Monday, and I felt good because of the Women's March over the weekend, even though it was Trump's inauguration on Friday. And that feeling has dissipated a bit this week uh, with the flurry of executive orders and uh, Trump continuing to be Trump. Not changing in any way, shape, or form, but just seemingly getting worse and, and a little bit crazier, right? Yeah, much worse. I listened to the Monday pod yesterday when I was, it was like super early in the morning. I was at the Atlanta airport and I was listening to it when I got the notification that Trump had ordered a massive investigation into fake voter fraud. And <laughs> you guys are like, look at all the marchers. I felt so good. People recognized me, women. <laughs> Protest, resistance, great. And I was like, eh, not so great. Not so great. It was, it was like it was like a, it was like a throwback to a different era. Uh, we can't let them beat us down, though. That's the uh, that, that's that's what I'm taking from this because it's just you could get every day the news could get so bad that at some point you're just like I can't even tune in. I have to walk away, and that's that's the thing that you have to fight against. I think, though it's though it I, has it has been tricky this week. I will tell you. Yeah, I did something that I'm. I'm not sure it was the right decision. So the single, in my opinion, at least, most important reporter to follow to understand Trump and what Trump's doing is Maggie Haberman of the New York Times. For she sure. somehow has managed to be like give really mm. tough coverage of Trump, yet still get him on the phone and has sources all throughout Trump world. And so I'm trying to like keep up with what's happening. So I added mobile notifications for for Maggie's tweets. Um, Maggie's tweets. <laughs> and it is useful. Like, you really do get a lot of really good information, but it is. She's a prolific tweeter, and it's like a minute by minute accounting of the coming apocalypse. Yeah. And she wrote that story a few days ago about how Trump feels about his new digs in the White House. And, <laughs> you know, it's like a fairly soft piece. But when you read it, you realize it's smart of her to do a piece like that where she sort of talks to Trump about how he's feeling about the White House and stuff like that because she's clearly cultivated him as a source <laughs> uh, who's going to talk to her for more important things and, and much more critical stories, you know. <laughs> there are so many takeaways from that story. The part where it said he still gets up before 6 a.m. to watch cable news. But because his meetings start at nine in the White House, much earlier than they did in the Trump Organization, he's had to cut his screen time down. I'm like, is he a toddler? Like, no, they were all, and all the aides are talking about that on background. They're like, oh, we still got to give him plenty of TV time. He's got to get his TV in. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? I mean, what do you think and the schedule he, is? Do you think it's he wakes up? There's probably a lot of Morning Joe, right? And then at some point, he probably switches over to CNN to start screaming at the television and the fake news headlines, right? He must. And the other part of that story I thought was amazing was that his one uh, concession to and like acknowledgement that he's fully 
going to get involved in the affairs of state as the president of the United States and leader of the free world is that he's added the Washington Post to his morning newspaper routine. <laughs> so it's the New York Times, the New York Post, and now the Washington Post. So we can track what's happening in Congress. He's really, he's really expanding his horizons. He's a very uh, clearly intellectually curious. <laughs> Did you see that story from Gabe Sherman about how Trump's war on CNN is based in the fact that he is upset. He thinks Jeff Zucker wronged him because they they were they had a long term relationship, and he thinks CNN should be covering him like Fox. I mean, <laughs> well, I think that CNN. I mean, basically, Jake Tapper has been covering him in a way that all reporters should cover him on CNN. I don't know. And then they've been doing and like Brian Stelter, and there's some other uh, folks on CNN I think that have been doing some much better reporting than they did during the campaign, though I think during the campaign, Jake was very good as well. So I, could, I do notice a turn in CNN a little bit from where they were during the, uh, during the campaign, so I could see how he must be getting pissed at them. The basic takeaway is not good. And this isn't, I mean, where, where are we? Are we still trying to make people feel good, or are we like, I, laying out our true feelings about things? I never want to make people feel good if there's nothing to feel good about, but I want people to always feel like they can do something and that they should be involved in the fight here. So I think that when you're involved in the fight, sometimes it feels awful and it feels like there's nothing we can do, but you keep pressing ahead anyway. That's yeah. my, that's where I am. My message is wet the bed. <laughs> Regularly, profusely wet the bed. And but don't just stay in me, the bed. Don't just stay in the bed and wet it all the time. Get up yes. out of bed and go do something. And then if you still want to wet it at night, that's fine. But, but do something during the day so that I you... Wanted to, I want to say you're going to extend the urination metaphor into political activism. Yeah, I can't. I can't get too far with that. Um, I mean, what? The, I think the difficult thing this week is trying to determine the sort of worry outrage level because i do think and we've talked about this before i don't think you can turn it up to 10 with every single announcement or pronouncement that trump makes because i do think that some of the things he did this week are much more serious than others like i was saying you know some of the social media accounts of various agencies you could see that if we were in the white house and we just stepped in and there was a bunch of Bush political appointees at the agencies still like subtweeting Barack Obama on policies they disagreed with, we'd probably say, please stop tweeting until the Obama agenda is in place. So, you know, there was a lot of outrage and worry over that. And I think maybe that's a little bit misplaced. Then, of course, I saw the headline that, you know, the e- for the EPA, they're not allowed to actually put out scientific reports anymore until Trump political appointees look at them. And that should worry people significantly. Yeah, I've been, I am, it's Thursday morning. I am, we are really six days into the Trump presidency and I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted (laughs) and outrage and worry. And I agree with you. We like, there is a limited pool of personal and collective outrage and we have to find the things to to get upset about and and to separate the signal from the noise with the signal being the things that actually matter and the noise being the bullshit out there. But people ask me all the time over the last, particularly the last week, but over the last, you know, since this election, you know, as someone who I'm sure you get this too, as someone who worked in the white house, like what's going to happen. Basically the question comes down to, is it going to be fine? Right. The same question people asked us in the election and we gave them the, <laughs> the wrong answer. Um, mm-hmm. And the, my answer is it's not going to be fine. It right. is not. I am deeply fucking worried about the state of the country, the mental state of our president, the ineptitude of the people he has surrounded himself with. I mean, it is a deeply, I mean, if you want to be concerned about our short, medium, and long-term future as a functioning democracy, watch the full interview that Donald Trump had with David Muir of ABC News last night. Oh, oh my God. That was... I watched that late last night with Emily, who had to, like, stop after the first two parts of it. And she's like, I can't can't look at this anymore. (laughs) And um, because I'm a glutton for punishment, I watched all five segments. It was... I mean, he just, he hasn't changed at all. 
at all. He has not tried to grow into the job. He has not tried to be more responsible. He has not tried to be more presidential. I mean, there's a we could go through this interview the entire pod here, but uh, we have other things to talk about. But I thought his comments to David Muir about the CIA visit were maybe the craziest of the whole interview when he decided to uh, talk about his crowd size or the debate around his crowd size. Oh, and the applause that the CIA was giving him. And he said, quote, they said it was the biggest standing ovation since Peyton Manning had won the Super Bowl. And they said it was equal. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? You're talking about your, your the, the size of your standing ovation at the CIA in front of the wall that is there to honor fallen CIA operatives. That's what you're talking about. And you're comparing it to fucking Peyton Manning coming after he won the Super Bowl. Like, that... What? Why? Why? Okay, first, who compared it to Peyton Manning? Like, what was the one person who did that? Right. So why Peyton? Why Peyton Manning was that? Did Peyton Manning? I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty big football fan. Did I'm not aware that the Peyton Manning post Super Bowl standing ovation was somehow historically known as the greatest of all standing ovations. Like, I, no, what about I was like, his did, good did, friend Tom Brady? Well, did Peyton Manning go to the CIA? That's what I was trying to figure out. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know why you would compare it to a random, you know, standing ovation for a quarterback. You know, like, I just, I don't understand that. Glenn Kessler at the Washington Post, who's the fact checker at the Washington Post, who, you know, we've all had arguments with over the years. He tweeted, this interview is so filled with inaccurate and misleading statements by Trump. I don't even know where to begin. If you have, if, if Glenn Kessler, who lives, who wakes up every day to try to find something wrong on something someone says, it just gave up that you, you have so far exceeded all bounds of truth and objectivity in the world. That huh? se- that entire interview, but the section you point out particularly, would be Exhibit A in Donald Trump's commitment hearing. Like, <laughs> it is deeply disturbing. How did you think David Muir did in that interview? I think he did good, fine. I mean, he's yeah. not – you can't be who you're not. Right. He is not Jake, right? Jake has a certain personality. Jake is a dog with a bone, and that he is aggressive, and that's how he was in the briefing with Robert Gibbs and Jake Harney when they were press secretary. He that's just who he is, and he that's not David Muir, but David Muir was well prepared for the briefing, and you know I thought you know having spoken to the author, knowing that Trump it's not rocket science, but you know, other people have not been the, done the, done it this well. Having the foresight to at least call the author of the Pew study that you knew Trump was going to cite, so you could respond to that. I think he did. I think he did pretty good. Like it's yeah. not perfect. I mean, no, I thought he did. I thought he had a lot of uh, tough follow ups. I think I was having a debate about this with my friend who was like, oh, I, I thought he was great, and the problem is he had to cover every. He had to cover a ton of different topics, so he eventually had to move on. And yes, that's the truth. That's that's how usual, uh, interviews usually go. You have a bunch of different, you know, newsy topics that you have to cover, so you can only press the subject on one subject so many times. But I wonder if there are new rules for Trump that journalists have to just sort of think outside the box and be like, well, if I didn't get to six or seven newsy topics in this interview because I was pressing him to, you know, explain what the hell he means by voter fraud that doesn't exist for 10, 15 minutes, then I'm going to do it. So it's not a really a criticism of David Muir, because like you said, I think he, he did a great job, and I think that's what journalists usually do. But I wonder if there are uh, new rules for journalists in, this, uh, in the Trump era. I think that's right. And that is, I mean, that's what Jake did with the Mexican, with the right. Trump's allegations about that American citizen, a judge who's American citizen of Mexican descent can't, <laughs> can't um, rule in his case, uh, rule in a case about Trump, which is... To quote Paul Ryan, basically the textbook, a textbook case of racism. Yeah. He pushed Trump really hard on that repeatedly and really wouldn't let him get off it. I think that's something that that interviewers really need to think about because Trump is not a normal politician. He's not even, frankly, a normal human being. And the normal rules don't apply. And it's pretty clear. You can see this in the first few days of the Sean Spicer briefing. I was going to say. Journalists speak- are wrestling with how to how to do their craft in a time in which the normal rules don't apply. Yeah. I was going to say, so speaking of normal rules, not applying, uh, Sean Spicer 
We'll start. We'll start off where we left off uh, on Monday's pod, which we we recorded right before Sean's Sean's first official briefing. Actually, Sean's first official briefing since he made a complete ass of himself in his first official briefing. <laughs> this was his his big do over on Monday, and you know, like he gets up there on Monday. He sort of ably dodges questions and tells a bunch of lies, but it seems more charming than it had been on Saturday, and he wore a better suit. So a bunch of people were like, great job, much more effective today. It's like, yeah, he was definitely more effective than when he went out into the press briefing room, started screaming at everyone for five minutes, didn't take any questions, and then ran back inside. I guess I guess if that's the bar, then he, he certainly leapt over it on Monday, but I don't know if it was, uh, I don't know if it was a ton better than that. No, I mean it. I mean to be totally honest, he's toast. He ruined his career on Saturday. I mean, he is a walking internet meme right now. <laughs> I mean, Steve Kerr, great American and not a Trump supporter, um, you know, made a Sean Spicer joke on Sunday in his interview after the Warriors game. Like the. the this is a the Dallas Stars, the the hockey team, the NHL team in Dallas, uh, when they did the regular announcement of attendance for the game, put 1.5 million people <laughs> so on the, over the weekend. Like every, it is he has become a joke. And that Tommy talked about this on Monday with you guys, but he's right. Like right now, it's kind of funny, and we can make fun of him when he's going back and forth looking ridiculous with John Carl or Jeff Zelny or some reporter in the briefing room. But there's gonna be a time where he is the person speaking about something very, very serious, something more serious than, you know, inauguration crowd size. And he's the voice of the federal government and people are not going to believe him because he's a joke. Well, and he he continues to not tell the truth, right? I mean, yesterday during the briefing, when someone uh, asked about the report that the Trump administration was considering reopening CIA black sites around the world. Uh, He said, that is not a White House report. I don't know what you're talking about. We were totally taken off guard. You know, it was was some memo that was floating around. And I found myself thinking, okay, maybe he's telling the truth. He seems like he's telling the truth, but I also know that he's lied many times before, so I can't really trust him. And then, sure enough, later in the day, there's a report that no, 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 the White House did send around a memo to people about reopening CIA black sites. So he wasn't telling the truth again. And the the question there is, did he lie or did right. he just not know because he is not he, – he is taking – he is taking equally unseriously inside the White House and outside of the White House. And either, I mean, you, either is a problem for his job. <laughs> huge pro, Huge problem. And I mean that's one of the biggest challenges being press secretary is – having enough juice to know what's happening so you're not caught out there saying something that even that you believe to be true but is most certainly not true because no one got around to telling you the truth. Now, it's a big federal government, things happen. You have to be savvy enough to answer questions in a way that give you a little room if you don't know the answer. Um Sean Spicer is the opposite of savvy. But it, the thing like this is a fascinating. I mean, the fact that people are aggre- from inside the White House are aggressively sticking a knife in him, like the reporting that Donald Trump didn't want him. This might be a trap to the sitting man on Saturday to make a fool of himself on the crowd size might have been a trap that Donald Trump makes fun of him in private because he doesn't like his suits. I mean, <laughs> and the people who are telling Maggie Haberman this on a near daily basis is, uh, you know, suggests that we will soon have a second. We'll soon have another Trump press secretary. Well, but it also, like, I was watching the reaction on Monday to the press conference, and this is such a fucking Washington thing to do, which is he screws up so badly on Saturday, he comes back on Monday and, you know, doesn't, like, light himself on fire at, at, the, at the podium and gets through all the questions and smiles and makes a few jokes and is and is wearing a better suit. And, you know, a bunch of... People in Washington are saying like, oh, much better today, a lot more effective, really. He really it's it's just it's always judging things on style when substantively he's still not telling the truth. He still hasn't apologized for uh the lies he told on Saturday. He hasn't done anything to sort of reclaim his credibility. And so then, you know, a lot of these people just sort of move on. 
and wait for the next lie to flip out about. And I'm just like, we gotta, we gotta remember here what happened. <laughs> we can't, yeah. we can't be judging this thing on a curve. It's just not, or or just on like style points. Like that's not going to do anyone any favors. It, it's also worth noting that Sean Spicer is unlike unlike the rest of the Trump senior staff. Sean Spicer is a member of the club. Right. He, he's worked in D.C. for years and years and years. He's goes to all the parties. They He hangs all these people with reporters at the convention and goes to dinner with them. And I say this as you and I, longtime members of the club. Right. right. So this I, I'm not like holding a pitchfork trying to take down the town. But but Sean Spicer is different in the eyes of a lot of these reporters because they've known him for five, 10, 15 years, um, worked with him on num- like campaigns at the RNC. And, you know, this is unlike a Steve Bannon or maybe Josh Kushner or Ivanka or people who they don't know. Sean Spicer has been, he's been playing the game for a long time. And so people gave him some benefit of the doubt. I think it was a pretty short lived benefit of the doubt because he, it was like, Oh, he's not terrible. And then the answers on the questions around Trump's voter fraud investigation sort of put him right back in the soup. Yeah. Well, how did you think the reporters have have been doing with with Spicer in these briefings? You know, fine, I guess. I don't I generally don't think they should ask tough questions, but a whole bunch of like showmanship about how you ask them is I think somewhat pointless and counterproductive to the overall effort. Yeah. We they're, never like that either. Bit, he is a he has created for himself a real advantage by altering the order of questions. So he basically can go normal reporter to right-wing auxiliary state media member. And, I mean, Birth like one of his weekly. first questions was to a site set up by Laura Ingram, Trump supporter. Life set. Life set. Now, now we're, did you see, uh, by the way, that uh, fucking Alex Jones said that InfoWars has now received White House credentials? Infowars. Sandy Hook yes. truther, 9-11 truther, Alex Jones claims he has a White House credential now. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what he's saying. I mean, I'm, sh- I'm sure it is true. Like, I mean, Trump talked to Alex Jones after, right after the election. Like, he credited him with his win. Of course they're going to give him a credential because when Sean Spicer gets tired of asking a question from a real reporter, he can just call on Alex Jones or LifeZet or Breitbart or... You know, state TV, Fox News. It's bad. It's bad. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. All right, and we're back. So let's talk about uh, the voter fraud fiasco. In a meeting with congressional leaders, Trump 
uh, repeated the lie that he thinks millions and millions of people, three to five million by some counts, uh, voted illegally in the last election. Something that has no basis in evidence isn't true. No one has suggested it with any sort of basis in fact at all. Not just Trump, anyone. The story that he actually told, which Glenn Thrush reported in the New York Times yesterday, is pretty fucking amazing. <laughs> did you re- did you read the story, Dan? Oh, I read the story. I read the story. <laughs> so, from what I from what I remember here, Trump was told by his golfer friend Bernard Langer, Bernard a Langer, German professional golfer, a German professional golfer, right? Bernard Langer. So, tells him that. When he was uh, in Florida trying to vote, he was turned away at the polls, you know, because he's a German citizen. And But he said the people who weren't turned away at the polls were people in front of him who, quote, didn't look like they should be voting. And then Trump starts rattling off a list of Latin American countries to guess where those people might have been from. So that's racist. Um and then, so he so he says this, and Langer was really upset that he he couldn't vote. Now the Trump staff says that this was Langer telling Trump a story about some other friend. Uh, the congre- the people that were in the congressional meeting disagree with this account. But anyway, so Trump says this in the meeting. It leaks out of the meeting, and it becomes news. Spicer is then asked about it at the briefing and says, "Oh, if, if Trump really believes this, it would be the greatest political scandal in history." Uh, the greatest voter fraud in history. So why wouldn't there be an investigation? Uh, so Spicer sort of dodges that. And then Trump tweets, well, now there will be an investigation. So basically, crazy Trump story he tells in a closed-door meeting becomes news. The uh, Reporters try to hold them accountable for it. And then he makes policy based on the crazy thing that he said. That's where we are right now. That's sort of the story of the Trump presidency will be deeply disturbed conspiracy theorist president spouts off about something entire federal government then tries to figure out how to make policy to deal with that conspiracy theory that is fueled from his deep deep personal insecurities because this is all about the fact he lost the popular vote he is trying to find a way to explain to himself not even really the country but to himself why three million more people voted for hillary clinton than him right and apparently this really bothers him. I think Maggie reported this, Haberman, that he has this fear and this anger that he's not a legitimate president because of the popular vote thing. And it really gets at him. And so he's decided to make up this fiction that, you know, um, he, he would have won. And it was a bunch of people who shouldn't have voted that voted for Hillary Clinton. I mean, I mean it's so really much- ba- uh, Chris Hayes tweeted yesterday. He's like, uh, please, no one ask Sean Spicer that. Uh, if if Trump hates China so much, why doesn't he just nuke them? <laughs> which which I like. I Good laughed call. and then cried for a little bit. Yeah, I mean it's pretty. I mean I don't. What's like? Is is it worse that Trump is is lying about this, or that he actually believes it? I, I, or is there some? Or has he believed his lie? I don't know. I would prefer a sane, dishonest president than an insane president, and I yeah. think we might have the latter. I mean, I think we might have both. The other question is why can't his why can't anyone who's working for him stop this? Because apparently he just doesn't have anyone around him who will tell him no about anything. It's clear that, I mean, it's I mean, this will probably not come as a shock to those of us who have watched Trump for the last two years here. He doesn't seem like someone who wants, you know, dissent in his organization or doesn't want to be told that he's wrong. And so how, look, power in the White House is is set up around how the president feels about you, right? Does the president trust you? Does the president talk to you? Do you get invited to meetings? And apparently in Trump world, if you tell the president that what he is saying is ridiculous and not to say it, then you don't get invited to meetings. So everyone just enables him. It, 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 is, a, it is a staff of amateurish enablers. And I mean, that's clearly what Trump wants. And it, that's the situation he's set up. But it's deeply... Dangerous. There is so, I mean, there's just so much to unpack here. Imagine you were at Thanksgiving and your uncle told the Bernard Longer story. Like, how awkward would that be? It's like, oh, drunk racist uncle just won't shut up. Yeah. And, and the part that's like beyond the fact that, let's state for the record, every person involved, including Republican secretaries of state, had said there is no evidence of voter fraud on any scale of what Trump's talking about or even. It, 
tiny, like maybe dozens of cases around the country. So nothing that would affect yeah. the election anyway. No, they had they had the uh, Ohio Secretary of State on record in in the New York Times, who's a Republican, who has participated in efforts to make it more difficult to vote. Certainly, no friend of uh, Democrats or voting rights. Um, no friend of democracy. No friend. Yeah, right. And he said, "No, I don't know what he's talking about. There's been no voter fraud. We've looked at this. We've investigated this. I have no idea what he's talking about." Other republic, like Lindsey Graham. Attacked him on the, you know, said something about Trump on this, said it was sort of crazy. I mean, all these other Republicans have sort of, you know, walked away from this uh, as much as Republicans can walk away from anything Trump does now because they're all too afraid to say anything critical. There is one other logical flaw to this theory because Trump said to David Muir, none of those people voted for me. Not a one. I can tell you that. Not a one. So the real question is, why did three to five million not illegal quote unquote, to use Trump's term, Trump voters, illegal voters vote for Hillary Clinton and then Ron Johnson for Senate. Right. <laughs> it's like the only no, what about, like, why did they why did they vote in California, New York? Why are they running up the score in uh, in in two big Clinton states? Like <laughs> just if, if you're gonna be three five million people voting legally, campaign. go to Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah. Like why did they deploy the massive illegal voting plan into states we'd already won? What what a strategic error on their part. It's just, it boggles the mind. It boggles yeah. the mind. So while this is all happening with the uh, the crowd size debate, the illegal voting fraud conspiracy, uh, the Trump administration has been very busy signing executive orders this week. You know, as we've known, because we did a bunch of executive orders uh, over the eight years in the White House with Obama, executive orders, you know, are, they can have the force of law behind them. It's basically like, what can the president do without congressional approval or without Congress passing a bill? And, you know, there is certain power and authority that the president has within the law to make policy on a certain set of issues. And so even though it is uh, preferable, obviously, to work with Congress and on many, many issues, you need Congress to pass an actual law to make something happen, there are a certain number of things you can do just via executive order. These were, of course, controversial in the Obama White House because every time Obama issued an executive order, Republicans called him, you know, like a tyrant and said he was power hungry and all this kind of stuff, even though usually, you know, the executive orders can be challenged. Uh, sometimes they're upheld. Sometimes they're not upheld, whether they're lawful or not. So there's a whole process in place for these. So Trump released executive orders on the Affordable Care Act. That one was very confusing. Was it, I, I, have you figured out what that one's about? No, it's mostly bullshit um, <laughs> to try and buy him some political space. But it is, he, it's basically a directive to the federal government trying to undermine the Affordable Care Act at every turn. So it's something to, if you like people living because they have access to health care, it should give you some concern. Yeah. I mean, my thought on all of these executive orders is a lot of them are very vague and, and, and sometimes they tend to look more like press releases than actual orders that will do something. But um, I wouldn't be as worried about them if we had a Democratic Congress, because a lot if there was a Democratic Congress who couldn't, you know, pass legislation that sort of fulfilled uh, the intention of a lot of these executive orders, you know, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a problem. But because there's a Republican Congress that will do anything Trump says, it's basically signals these these EOs signal like this is our intention, and as soon as we get Congress on board, this is what will happen. And so for ACA, the intention is, yeah, they're going to want to um, try to gut it as much as they can. There's one on pipelines, the Keystone Pipeline, and the pipeline in North Dakota uh, that they want built. That now goes to a State Department review. If the State Department says, okay, those pipelines will be built, even though, you know, we've determined that the environmental impact those pipelines could have would be considerable in a very, very bad way. On immigration, that was the that was probably the biggest one yesterday. It directed Congress to build to start building the wall. On that one, they do need congressional approval um, to get the money to build the wall. And but of course, Last night, hero to conservatism, Washington intellectual darling Paul Ryan said, sure, sure, we'll give Trump $14 billion for a concrete wall that Mexico may or may not pay for later. Yeah, absolutely. 
which Mexico said again this morning that they were not going to pay for. And now there are reports that Trump is considering canceling his summit with Mexico over this dispute. Apparently, so Mexico, apparently Mexico just canceled the meeting. Oh, good. Good. This is real news happening here that you all hear. Everyone else will hear hours from now. So Break, Breaking news here. Yeah. Uh, no, so Mexico canceled the meeting. Good for them. I mean, like, we're going to spend... And $14 billion is, is a lowball estimate, by the way. Like, most people think it might, it's probably around $20 billion. But um, the, the idea that we're just going to pay $20 billion for a concrete wall uh, at a time when illegal immigration is... Uh, across the border is sort of at an all-time low or 40-year low. Um, there's fencing all along the border. There's patrol agents all along the border. Like, no one would have said that the wall, a concrete wall, was the right idea before Trump decided to just toss it out as a random line in his stump speeches. Once again, something crazy Trump said, now will be national policy. I, it's just... <laughs> and Paul Ryan's just going along with it. Like, what the hell is wrong with that guy? <laughs> he's a chump. I mean, Paul Ryan's always been a chump. I know. Right. I mean, that that is the Washington needs Paul Ryan because they need someone who validates their view that there are good people in both parties. And if only we could all get together around a golf course or a <laughs> big stake at the palm, we could solve all the world's problems. And Paul Ryan is that guy. He is the Tip O'Neill to Barack Obama's. Ronald Reagan or the Simpson the Bowles Commission will save the world. Yeah. Well, guess what? No. He is. <laughs> he, he is, is a man who he is full once a week shit. gets in a room with Steve King, a mini Trump racist, and courts his vote to be speaker. Right. So spare me. The only the only people who believe the bullshit of Paul Ryan are Washington reporters and Paul Ryan. That's yeah, it's about right. Uh, so aside from the wall, the EO also talked about ending sanctuary cities, which are cities where undocumented immigrants uh, can live without fear of deportation because that decision is made on a local level. So what the Trump administration wants to do is cut off federal funding to these cities to try to get them to give up the undocumented immigrants in those cities, um, which in a piece of good news, uh, mayors from L.A. to New York to San Francisco uh, to a bunch of other to Boston to a bunch of other cities said, uh, "Keep your federal funding. We're not we're not turning over our uh, our New Yorkers or our Bostonians." Um, so that was that was hopeful, um, and they think that they can win that legal challenge if the Trump administration sues them in court. So hopefully that happens as well. Uh, the EO also talked about stepping up internal enforcement for deportations. They're expanding the definition of what constitutes a crime. And someone noticed that the definition is so expansive that they're saying that you're a criminal uh, immigrant if you are undocumented. That's the crime. Not that you, you know, committed some violent felony or stole or anything like that. Just by the virtue of being an undocumented immigrant, that could constitute being a criminal and then being deported. Bad. Bad. Bad All of this is bad. And I think... Our main point here by forcing you to listen to John read all the executive orders is that <laughs> I was gonna have the like, text when we're here. talking about Sean Spicer suits and debates about crowd size and alternative facts and whatever else is like real shit that really matters to real people is happening every day. And we can't lose sight of that, right? As we as Democrats are figuring out what we're going to do to fight back here. Let's not get distracted by all the shiny objects. All the shiny objects are also really scary, but bad things are happening and we have to be aware of them. Um, speaking of Democrats, what do you think about, so Trump's, we've had votes on a lot of Trump's cabinet picks in the Senate this week and a number of very progressive, very liberal Democrats, including you know, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, basically they've all voted for at least one of Trump's cabinet picks. This has sort of set off a debate and some anger among a lot of Democratic activists and just you know, Democratic voters. You know, I thought we were trying to oppose Trump here um, on everything. Why would we want to, you know, this was directed towards Elizabeth Warren. Why would you vote for Ben Carson for HUD when the man is so unbelievably unqualified to lead the, the uh, to be Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, and you know yet she voted for him? So 
I mean, what do you think about this debate? I, I will say that personally, if if I was in the Senate, I would not vote for any of these nominees. They're all, I mean, most of them are tremendously unqualified to do the job that they're supposed to do. And also, it's it's not just about their own personal qualifications, but it would be a protest vote against the many insane, dangerous policies that Donald Trump wants them to pursue. And so, and I also don't quite know the political downside of voting against all of these nominees. That said, it doesn't quite rile me up as much that some of these senators have decided to pick a few to go ahead and support only because they were going to get in anyway. Democrats do not have the power to block any of these. They do not have the votes to block any of these. So I think that if it meant, you know, if Elizabeth Warren had only voted against Ben Carson, then we wouldn't have a HUD secretary or maybe we'd get a normal HUD secretary, then yes, I would absolutely expect her to vote against him. But these are largely symbolic votes. I believe that Democrats, with one exception, should vote against all of Trump's nominees. I understand why some don't do it. Some of them are running in states that Trump won, and if you want, and they may want to avoid the talking point that opposed every, you know, obstructionists who opposed every nominee. I do not understand why anyone who is thinking of running for president in 2020 would vote for any of Trump's nominees. Though there is no political logic of that. I think I can be convinced that it is okay to vote for. Mattis for defense and maybe Nikki Haley for UN ambassador. Yeah. Mattis seems those like I think the there's going to be a lot of reasons that I'd be leaning to be concerned about yeah. Mattis, but he is, he is, I think at least it is fair to say of a different background or cut than these other people. I do not understand in any way why anyone would vote for Ben Carson for HUD. I mean, I think that is an insane decision. It is spend like five minutes Googling Ben Carson and then come back and tell me (laughs) what you think about his qualifications to lead a federal agency. Zero. He I mean, don't take our word for it. Take the word of his longtime advisor who said he is does not want to be appointed to the cabinet because he is totally unqualified to run federal agency. He knows nothing about his advisor. Democrats (laughs) should care about housing policy and you should not support. Secretary of HUD, who has zero experience in the things that HUD cares about, like go on record against that. It is offensive on every dimension that he picked Ben Carson to be HUD. And I cannot believe that he was approved out of committee unanimously. Like, what are we doing? I don't know. I don't know the thinking behind it. I really don't. I read Elizabeth Warren's uh, Facebook post on this, and I still didn't quite get it. You know, again, I'm not like, oh, she's sold out and I'm never going to support her and blah, blah, blah. I just I don't I don't get this decision, though. Yeah, I I am mystified by it, and I do think there is there are Democrats in the Senate. Some of them, I think they're getting to where they have to be. You can sort of see it happening over time, but they are still playing by an old set of rules, as if Jeb Bush or John Kasich is president of the United States right now, a traditional Republican who respects the norms of governing, and not a deeply disturbed, deeply ignorant megalomaniac and we have to adjust our strategies for that but the benefit i'm sounding very riled up about it right now and i'm generally riled up these days um but it's good i don't care what like if someone comes to me and says i got three candidates running for president and two of them voted for a couple of trump nominees and one voted for none of them which one do you want like that to me does not matter that much but I think we need to be the Ben Carson thing. We should care about housing and we should not approve of him. And that I think that is a very odd strategic choice by a lot of people, a lot of very proud progressives who have done really, really good work. It was just I'm mystified by it. Same. OK, when we come back, we will have Tom Perez, who is the uh, who's running for DNC chair, longtime friend of the pod. Ethical crooked media disclaimer here. Tom Perez is a friend of mine, and I have been actively supporting his DNC chairman candidacy. So just and, uh, want to put that out there because we take our journalistic ethics incredibly seriously here in the crooked media empire. And I haven't endorsed anyone because I'm a straight shooting journalist in the mold of John Lovett. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> oh, we got we to gotta wrap this up so you can get to your brunch with Sean Spicer. <laughs> we will be right back. You're listening to Pod Save America. 
Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. With us on Pod Save America today, former Secretary of Labor, current DNC chair candidate, and longtime friend of the pod, Tom Perez. Tom, welcome. Great to be with you guys. So we ask everyone this question here now. Uh, how are you feeling? Seven days of the Trump administration. Just want to check in and see how you're doing. Well, you know, uh, the day of reckoning has arrived. Uh, I simultaneously uh, have that pit in my stomach when I see everything he's done in six short days. The first thing he did was uh, to uh, tell people who were trying to f- buy a home. Uh, President Obama had lowered uh, the cost of buying a home for a first-time home buyer. Donald Trump said, nope, we're going to raise that cost back again. Um, no, you only have one chance to make a first impression, and that's the first impression of betrayal. I'm helping working people, but uh, no, I'm not. I said I would, but no, I'm not. And then the second, one of the early things he does is uh, go into Texas to take on a voter ID case that I brought. And uh, he uh, asked the court for more time because they're going to switch their position. Uh, that voter ID law was designed to make it impossible or next to impossible for African Americans and Latinos to vote. We sued, we won, and now they're going to switch sides. So. You know, our values are at stake. So I'm, I'm, it's kind of like the best of times and the worst of times. Because it's the best of times because the day after that uh, inauguration, uh, a remarkable thing happened around America. Uh, two and a half million people came together. More people here in Washington on Saturday than there were for the inauguration, by a lot. And what we have to do is turn that moment into a movement. And, and you know, frankly, that's why I'm running for DNC chair, because... We've we've got to we've got to tell America uh, that our values of inclusion and opportunity are still the values of America. What have you learned running for this job that you didn't know when you started, as you've been talking to folks out there? Well, I've learned that the, the, there's a real crisis of confidence and a crisis of relevance within the DNC and the Democratic Party. Uh, this is a turnaround job. Uh, we need to get back to basics. Uh, we need to organize, organize, organize. We need to make sure that the parties in all the states and territories are uh, are, are functional, are, are robust. I mean, we, we lost uh, Wisconsin, for instance, uh, not because uh, Donald Trump got more votes. Mitt Romney got more votes than Donald Trump. But what we did was we underperformed in Milwaukee, and we got our butts kicked in rural parts of the state where President Obama had done well. 
you can't show up every 4th October to a church and call that an organizing strategy. And so what I've learned is that we really need to get back to basics. We, need, we, can, turn the, we can turn around the, uh, the, the Democratic Party and the DNC by making sure we are organizing, organizing, organizing. We're supporting uh, candidates uh, from school board to the Senate. Uh, we are working together and doing a much better job of coordinating with our partners in the nonprofit world, consistent with all the FEC requirements. But we don't coordinate enough. I mean, you, you look at Florida. Great example, guys. Um, four years ago, the RNC, the Koch brothers, and the nonprofit infrastructure, and most notably but not exclusively the uh, Southern Baptist Church, in, invested in organizing, a four-year, 12-month-a-year investment. And that produced about 130,000 votes that nobody had seen coming. And that was basically the margin of victory. We need to get back to basics. I believe in data analytics. Uh, but you know what? Data analytics can't supplant house calls, can't supplant that organizing that is the lifeblood of the Democratic Party. I think our values are the right values, the values of a good job for everyone, the values that say that uh, you know, anyone who's living in the shadows, uh, you know, we're going to make sure that you have opportunity to get into the sunshine. Uh, we need to communicate those values better and we need to make sure we're organizing in urban, suburban, and rural America 12 months a year and building those parties. Tom, how, what would your message be to the folks who turned out, you know, either in Washington or all around the country on Saturday, who want to channel their energy? What should they do? They, sh- they should think about running for office. They should understand that uh, the Democratic Party uh, shares their values and shares their vision. I, I think about millennials. Uh, you know, part of the challenge we have with millennials is that they're less attached to institutions more broadly, including but not limited to the Democratic Party. What I also observe about millennials is that they are so remarkably altruistic. Uh, they want to build an America that works for everyone. And so what we have to do as Democrats is talk to the people here uh, who were here last weekend and, and tell them, and we've got to build that bridge because your values, your altruism, those are the values of the Democratic Party. If you care about climate change, so do we. And look what Donald Trump has done to muzzle climate science already in his first few days in office. If you care about immigration, so do we. And look what he's doing with this silly wall. If you care about job creation, so do we. And look what Democrats did under President Obama and under other Democratic administrations to create jobs. We are the party of opportunity. And what I think we have to do with these two and a half million folks is turn that moment into a movement. And uh, that's, that's why I'm excited about running, because the Democratic Party has to be at the center of this, partnering with um, you know our other... Uh, grassroots nonprofits who have been out in the trenches, but helping to lead this effort because people are asking me time and time again, guys, um, I want to do something. You know, point me in the right direction, and 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 that's why uh, last weekend Planned Parenthood uh, they didn't just bring people in, but they had training for hundreds of future organizers. We've got to dramatically expand that cadre of organizers, and then we organize around. Very real issues. For instance, um, the Affordable Care Act. You know, 18 million people stand to lose their insurance if they follow through on this threat. Millions of seniors who are getting, you know, thousand, two thousand dollars a year in prescription drug relief are going to lose that. Um, the diabetic or the other person with a pre-existing condition, um, they're going to lose their coverage. That's catastrophic. And we have to be that vessel, the Democratic Party, to help folks wherever you live to organize in communities so that we can take this energy and channel it so that we are not missing this moment, but we're in fact turning it into a movement. I think we can do it. So, Tom, you and Keith Ellison agree on almost every issue. You're both very, very progressive. But, you know, Bernie Sanders supporters, or a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters, you know, they see him as Bernie's guy. 
he endorsed Bernie, Bernie endorsed him. What do you say to those Bernie supporters who say, you know, well, by going with Keith Ellison, we sort of bring the Bernie wing into the party and we need to do that now because we need to unify. What, what's, what's your message to, to those supporters? Well, I would, I would ask them to both look at my record and um, also look at my campaign. I mean, I have people working for me who um, supported Hillary. I have people working for me who supported um, Senator Sanders. I have people working for me who were in the Obama administration. And I actually have people working for me who were casual participants in democracy, and they understood that that wasn't right. So now they want to help. And, um, and, and that's why, you know, I've, I've spent my whole life you know, bringing folks together. You know, when, when, the, when the West Coast ports came to a halt, you know, and the president sent me out there, he sent me out there because uh, he felt that I could earn the trust of uh, the parties who, you know, were frankly uh, at loggerheads. And, and when Verizon went on strike, you know, we were able to bring together sides that um, had distrust. And uh, I've been able to do that my whole career. And, and the issues that people in the Democratic Party care about, whether you supported um, whoever you supported in the primary, these are the issues I've worked on my entire life, whether it was fighting Joe Arpaio in Arizona, the rogue sheriff who's now the ex-sheriff, whether it was taken on Wall Street when we settled the two largest fair lending cases in the history of the Fair Housing Act on behalf of homeowners who got screwed, or whether it was um, moving forward on, on marriage equality. I mean, I've been fighting the good fight um, you know, for my whole career, and, and that's why I've been able to attract supporters uh, across the Democratic Party. And you know what? The bottom line is this. We have to come together as a party because... Folks, the, the, what Donald Trump is doing to America, that is the real threat. What unites us as Democrats far exceeds the differences that we have, and the differences are, are minuscule in comparison with what Donald Trump is doing to America already. And, and everyone I talk to, um, they understand that. And, and, and frankly, when I've been talking to voting members, of the DNC, they understand that uh, we have an existential threat right now, and we must come together. And I've been very heartened um, by the the conversations and meetings and outreach I've done with folks who, again, supported uh, Senator Sanders, supported Secretary Clinton, um, and what they want is a leader who has um, you know that progressive vision, and then who also knows how to turn around an, uh, an organization that isn't firing on all cylinders. And I've heard from a lot of people, you know, Tom, um, you've been a turnaround artist at the Labor Department and at the Civil Rights Division before that. And uh, we not only need someone who can take the fight to Donald Trump, we need someone uh, who can really turn around this organization that, that needs that, needs a culture change. And, and I've been able to do that. And, uh, and that's why I think we've been able to get a lot of support. Speaking of the idea of turning around the DNC, what are some of the reforms or changes you would put in place at the DNC to get it functioning at a higher level? Sure. Well, first of all, we've got to change the culture. It's a command and control culture. Uh, people, uh, you, you, you speak only when spoken to. Uh, good leaders are good listeners. And, and we were able to turn around the places I've worked at before because we gave people a meaningful seat at the table. And I'm not just talking about DNC members. I'm talking about stakeholders in the Democratic Party that's how we engage millennials, when they see they have a meaningful seat at the table. So that's, that's step one. We also have to uh, build that organizing capacity that I talked to that simply doesn't exist right now. We've got to make sure we're investing in all of the states to give them that capacity to recruit candidates, to help train those candidates, and um, to help those candidates win. And then we've got to figure out, and, and, and I've talked about this a lot, we have some immediate threats right now that we have to absolutely ramp up our efforts on. Uh, and the, to me, the most significant threat is the voter suppression that is an indispensable part of the Republican playbook. It is absolutely unconscionable uh, what has been going on. And I, I sued Texas. I've sued South Carolina. We've sued North Carolina. Um, and, and voter suppression is a staple in their playbook. And right now at the DNC, there are three or four very hardworking, very talented people, but that's all there is taking on this issue. 
and, 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 and they're taking on the Koch brothers machine and ALEC and all the far-right organizations who are able to make it next to impossible for people to vote. You, you don't go to a knife fight with a spoon. And that's what we're doing in the voting context, which is why I've called for the creation of voter protection and empowerment unit within the DNC, uh, a muscular unit uh, that will enable us to play a much more robust part in making sure that we're playing offense and defense, protection and empowerment. Both words matter. We've got to protect. We've got to play defense. When these voter purges occur and they're illegal, we've got to get in there earlier so that we prevent them. These voter ID laws, we've got to, we've got to nip them at the bud. And then we should be playing offense. You know, Oregon has vote by mail. We should be advocating for universal registration. Um, Arizona did something really smart a while back. They, they through ballot initiative, created an um, independent redistricting commission, and there are a couple more Democrats um, as a result in Arizona because if left to their own devices, the hyper-partisan far right would have done the same gerrymandering that's being done in Ohio and Michigan and elsewhere. And there's a dozen states that could do that by ballot initiative where um, these are red states. And so we need to play defense and we need to play offense on voting. And, and this is an immediate challenge. And, and, and when, I, when I mention culture change, the last thing I'll say is uh, we need to make sure that we are less Washington-centric. Yes, we have to obviously work to help elect the president and, and members of the Senate and the House, but we've all too frequently ignored um, the necessity to help elect people in state legislatures. In places like that, because if we're going to prevail on redistricting, uh, you know, we've got to flip these state legislatures, and we've been getting our butts kicked. And, and that is a critical element of what we need to do. And, and, and we can do it. I, I, you know, the energy out there is palpable. And, and, and as I've said a number of times, we've got to transform and, and uh, take that, um, this moment and turn it into a real movement. So, Dan and I were just talking about this. Would you have voted for any of Trump's cabinet picks if you were in the Senate? Well, I, I'm hard-pressed to think of any right now that I would have voted for. <laughs> uh, they're, they're in the process of normalizing things that should never get normalized, um, ethical misconduct. I mean, when you have a nominee for HHS secretary who has been um, pretty evidently profiting <laughs> from laws that he helped pass, um, that's, that's remarkable uh, when, when you have others who have, talk, have, have acknowledged, and, and apparently the vetting's being done for the first time uh, during the nomination hearings, uh, because, or the confirmation hearings, because you know, we see folks who, uh, at least one nominee who was um, uh, employing folks who were not authorized to work, well, that used to be disqualifying. And so we're normalizing ethical uh, lapses that are just off the charts. And then putting that aside, I mean, the nominee to replace me is a guy who, you know, is a plaintiff in the lawsuit to uh, overturn our efforts to give people more money. I thought Donald Trump said, I want to give you a raise. And then the labor secretary nominee is a guy who believes that seven and a quarter um, is either okay or maybe too high, <laughs> and uh, you know has called his own workers some of the worst of the worst. I mean, that's not the person you want to lead the labor secretary. I want, I want, I want a leader in the labor department who's going to actually care about giving workers a raise. And so, uh, we're normalizing whether it's alternative facts. I don't know what the hell that means. That's an oxymoron. <laughs> You know, I, hey guys, I'm 27 years old. You know, my children would say daddy's lying right now, but daddy, in response to the Donald Trump universe, will say, no, I'm not lying. That's just an alternative fact. I mean, even if you produce your birth certificate, people wouldn't believe you. Or so <laughs> exactly. I've heard. So, I mean, I, I'm very concerned about this. And, you know, and we're going to have a Supreme Court nominee coming up. And um, if, if the past five days is prologue for. Uh, for that, you know, I, I hope we don't hesitate to use the filibuster because, you know, when it comes down to it for me, folks, you know, I, I, people say, how should we treat Donald Trump? And, and I've said this repeatedly. 
I think we should accord him the same level of courtesy that Mitch McConnell accorded to Barack Obama. <laughs> which is <laughs> Nothing no courtesy respect. whatsoever. No, exactly, yeah. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, again, for your second appearance here on the pod, we really appreciate it. Hey, and, I'm honored. And, uh, and best of luck to you. A couple weeks left, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Sprint to the finish. Thanks, Tom. Bye. Thanks, Tom. Thanks again to Tom Perez for joining us today. Well, we will be back on Monday. Uh, until then, have a great weekend. We'll be back on Monday, presuming America still exists. <laughs> Sad, Dan. All right, bye, guys. Yes. Bye. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.